Papa Bear, our very last recording session before we go on the big trip that we've been trying to do for four or five years now, yes. this trip. Finally We're finally go. doing yeah. our trip to Europe, Cam and Ray's Tour de l'Amour, <laughs> uh, the tour of love where we're going to Paris, Ajaccio, Florence, Rome and Athens with uh, a handful of our very dearest friends, the best, and and my and my mum, right. and uh, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we'll see. She's she's quite sick as of today. Just Aww. made a doctor's appointment for us, yeah. so you know she may not survive. But okay. uh, we'll see how we go. <laughs> I said to her the other day, if you die before I go, I just want you to know I'm going on the trip. So <laughs> don't, yeah. Don't think I'm cancelling just because I have Quick to bury you. I'll, or, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'll, I'll outsource that shit to Uber <laughs> or something. No! No! Um, so uh, let's get into it, Ray, because uh, we've got a couple of really big shows to yeah. do. And rather than do three hour-long shows, I think we're going to do two just big shows because right. I didn't really find like a good cutting point. Right. Like two big swinging Shows we're going to do today. Um, gird your loins, tuck them up there, strap them in, because um, we've got some stuff. Right. Let's get it on. I'm going to start uh, with this clip. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history. And we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb over the center of Hiroshima, killing at least 70,000 civilians instantly. Mm and maybe another 50,000 more in the days, weeks, and months to follow. Three days later, it exploded another atomic bomb over Nagasaki, slightly off target, killing 40,000 immediately and tens of thousands of others later on. 
Mr. Akihiro Takahashi was 14 years old when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. He was standing in line with other students at his junior high school, waiting for their morning meeting. They're about 1.4 kilometers away from the center. Mm. He, he later said, the heat was tremendous. I felt like my body was burning all over. For my burning body, the cold water of the river was as precious as the treasure. Then I left the river and I walked along the railroad tracks in the direction of my home. On the way, I ran into another friend of mine, Tokujiro Hata. I wondered why the soles of his feet were badly burnt. It was unthinkable to get burned there, but it was undeniable fact the soles were peeling and red muscle was exposed. Even I myself was terribly burnt. I could not go home ignoring him. I made him crawl using his arms and knees. Next, I made him stand on his heels and I supported him. We walked heading toward my home, repeating the two methods. Mr. Takahashi was under medical treatment for about a year and a half. Um, If I could, I found a report by the Manhattan Engineer District which was put out in, on June 29th, 1946, obviously for the United States government, obviously for the Manhattan Project and the military. And if I could just take a moment and give a really high level of their assessment, and then quite frankly, we're going to spend this show and the next show uh, tearing it to pieces. But, but if I could, I'm just going to do this real quickly. So the report starts out with, this report describes the effects of the atomic bombs which were dropped. It summarizes all the authentic information that is available on damage to structures, injuries to personnel, moral effect, etc., which can be released at this time without prejudicing, prejudicing the security of the United States. And it's that last sentence that's going to pretty much mean that this document is worth it, worthless because they're not going to include anything uh, uh, that we now know today to be true. Um, They talk about the flash burns. They talk about physical burns. You know, fires were started from 15,000 feet away from from point zero. And uh, there's this one part. This is your trivia for the day. I just found this to be really amazing. One part of the report said, the energy released when a pound of TNT explodes would, if converted entirely to heat, raise the temperature of 36 pounds of water from freezing to boiling. But the nuclear fission of a pound of uranium would produce equal temperature rise and equal t- temperature rise in over 200 million pounds of water. So they had to know what they were dealing with. But the part of the report that really got me that says medical findings show that no person was injured by radioactivity who was not exposed to the actual explosion of the bombs. No injuries resulted from persistent radioactivity of any sort. And as we're, as we're going to go into, uh, that's simply not true. It also said that deaths from radiation began about a week after exposure and reached a peak in about three or four weeks. And then it practically ceased after seven to eight weeks. And as we know now, that's simply not true. The Center for Nuclear Studies wrote a report that talked about leukemia and how that comes about because... Um, the uh, the uh, leukemia starts in the bone marrow, and as these guys, as these uh, researchers did not know, is that 
the bomb blast, the ra- the radioactivity starts affecting the leuke- starts affecting the bone marrow, and so sometimes it takes years for this stuff to show up. And as we're going to go into it, many 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 people who were exposed to this died decades later from leukemia. And there's also another part, another form of cancer that you can get that a smaller percentage of people have got. So forty six percent, you were you had a forty six percent chance if you did not die in the blast, if you were in the area of getting leukemia. And as we go through here, and Cam has his stories, uh, it is incredible that this report was nothing more than to make people who read this report feel better about only the people that were immediately around, who were killed right away, suffered. There's no lingering effects. Everything else is fine. It's okay to use this bomb in the future. When did that report come out? June 29th, 1946. Hmm. Yeah. Aiko Taoka is 21. One of uh, nearly 100 passengers uh, said to have been on board a streetcar that left Hiroshima Station a little after 8 a.m. It's about 750 meters from ground zero uh, when the bomb fell. Taoka was heading for Fanari with her one-year-old son to uh, get a wagon to help her move out of the building that they were living in, which was scheduled to be evacuated. At 8.15, as the streetcar approached Hachibori Station, an intense flash and blast engulfed the car, instantly setting it on fire. Her son... One-year-old son died of radiation sickness three weeks later. Mm-hmm. She said, when we were near in Hachibori and since I'd been holding my son in my arms, the young woman in front of me said, I'll be getting off here. Please take this seat. We were just changing places when there was a strange smell and sound. It suddenly became dark. And before I knew it, I had been thrown outside. I held my son firmly and looked down at him. He'd been standing by the window and I think fragments of glass had pierced his head. His face was a mess because of the blood flowing from his head. But he looked at my face and smiled. His smile has remained glued in my memory. He did not comprehend what had happened and so he looked at me and smiled at my face which was all bloody. I had plenty of milk which he drank all throughout the day. I think my child sucked the poison right out of my body. And soon after that, he died. I think he died for me. Mm. Miss Akiko Takakura was 20 years old when the bomb fell. She was in the bank of Hiroshima, 300 meters away from the hypercenter. Miss Takakura escaped death, although she had 100 lacerated wounds on her back. She's one of very few people who survived who were within... 300 meters of the hypercenter. She said, Many people on the street were killed almost instantly. The fingertips of those dead bodies caught fire, and the fire gradually spread over their entire bodies from their fingers. A light gray liquid dripped down their hands, scorching their fingers. I was so shocked to know that fingers and bodies could be burnt and deformed like that. I just couldn't believe it. It was horrible. And looking at it, it was more than painful for me to think how the fingers were burned. Hands and fingers that would hold babies or turn pages, they just burned away. For a few years after the A-bomb was dropped, 
I was terribly afraid of fire. I wasn't even able to get close to fire because all my senses remembered how fearful and horrible the fire was, how hot the blaze was, how hard it was to breathe the hot air. It was really hard to breathe. Maybe because the fire burned up all the oxygen, I don't know. I couldn't open my eyes enough because of the smoke which was everywhere. Not only me, but everyone felt the same. And my parts were covered with holes. On August 6th, 1945, Yoshito Matsushige was 32 years old, living at home in Midoricho in Hiroshima. His house was about 1.7 miles away from Ground Zero, just outside of the 1.5 mile radius of the destruction zone created by the atomic blast effects of that bomb. Mm -hmm. Uh, Miraculously, he wasn't seriously injured by the explosion. And he grabbed his camera and two rolls of film with about 24 possible exposures and took off towards the center of town, well, the, to, to ground zero, to try and take photographs of what had happened. During the next 10 hours, Matsushige was only able to click the shutter seven times. He later said, it was such a cruel sight that I couldn't bring myself to press the shutter. Uh, he was also worried that the people would be angry if he, someone was taking their picture, seeing they were burned and had their skin peeling off them. Mm-hmm. Even with the photos that he did take, he couldn't bring himself to develop the film straight away. It took him 20 days uh, for him to be able to actually developed the film he did it at night using a radioactive stream to rinse the photographs only five of the seven photographs that he took were developable and they're the only immediate record of the destruction of the Hiroshima bomb a few weeks after the bombing the American military confiscated all of the photographs or newsreel footage that had been taken by Japanese after the bombing. Mm -hmm. But they failed to collect the negatives. Uh. As a result, Matsushige's photographs from the immediate hours after the bombing Uh, were published, but it wasn't until after the end of the United States occupation of Japan in April 1952. There's a magazine, Japanese magazine, Asahi Gorafu, which published his photographs in a special edition on August 6th, 1952, seven years after the bomb dropped exactly. Mm. Um, But there was somebody else who was there, Uh, not long after the bomb. An Australian journalist, war correspondent, Wilfred Burchett, who was writing at the time for the London Daily Express, he got into Hiroshima. He was the first Western journalist to get to Hiroshima after the bombing. Wow. Uh, He got there with a pistol, a typewriter, and a Japanese phrase book, which is basically my plan for our trip to Europe (laughs) on Sunday. That's all I'm taking. Pistol. Um... 
The Japanese phrase books is just just to you know be a cunt. I'm going to speak Japanese to everybody as we're walking around Europe. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. Burchett um, said Hiroshima does not look like a bombed city. It looks as if a monster steamroller has passed over it and squashed it out of existence. Sorry, you wanted to say something? Uh, yeah, what I'm gonna, what I want to do is, um, I found this little-known book. There, there was a gentleman who was a um, first um, on on the site witness, and he didn't write anything until like the late 1980s. He died, and then his son took it and translated it into Japanese. It's uh, into English. I apologize. It's uh, it's called the Diary of a Young Surgeon by Mitsuru Suzumura. Now he was on an island called. Ninoshima, which is about th- three kilometers opposite of Hiroshima City, and he's a doctor. He'd only became a doctor in 1943. And what I'll do is I'll start this narrative, but then I'll I'll keep going with it in between Cam stories. And this doctor, uh, he, he, when you see his picture in 1943, I swear to God, he looks like he's 12 years old. I mean, just skinny. And he, he has no, you know, besides being in school, he has. No idea what he's doing. So by the time 1945 comes along, he's seen everything. He's seen all the horrors of war. And on this island, right right in the bay, right across from Hiroshima, he is in charge of a quarantine center. And it's going to obviously be used as an emergency field hospital. So when the, and of course they have no idea what's going on. Just out of nowhere, they see these planes. Only It's, it's only three planes. They're ignoring them because they know they're going to bomb the main city. So they ignore them. Suddenly this giant blast comes along. And even though he's three kilometers away on this island, he said the fire wind, as he called it, knocked him right off his feet. And what's going to happen is he notices right after this, because he's a doctor, he has a fever. It's a very constant fever, and he's going to have it for two months, and he's not going to think anything about it at the time. So they don't know what happened, but they can tell there was this big explosion, and he gets informed that their first patient, the first victim of whatever this different kind of bomb is, is coming in. It's a 15-year-old boy. He had been in a rowboat in between the island and Hiroshima. He has first-degree burns on the right side of his body, the right side of his face. But as the doctors are examining examining him, it looks like it's an intense sunburn. But he got the sunburn all at once. And they can't figure it out. And he's about to obviously see a lot worse. So the staff at this um, center is told, quarantine center, is told that they're going to receive about 600 patients. Uh, whereas we find out they get 600 patients, then they get 1,000 500 patients, then they get 3,000 patients, and they just keep coming and coming and coming. When the first four ships from Hiroshima come to them, the doctors and the nurses and all their orderlies that are, are that are with them are looking at this black mass that's on the deck of the ship. They can't tell what it is. It's almost like charcoal or whatever. But as they look closer, it's moving. And when the ship comes up, it turns out that it's human beings who have been burnt, scorched, and they're all withering in pain. Now, this is not a very big center because they don't deal with this kind of stuff. But then they soon have to kick into action and try to help these people. They try to lift them off the boats. But as they grab them, their skin just slides off their body. It doesn't matter where they touch them. The skin just slides off and blood starts cut, gushing out. And as you can imagine, for most of these victims, this is just way too much for the body to take. And they start dying immediately right there in their arms. 
It took them a couple hours, but they start to figure out how to lift these people or to move them without so much skin falling off. And for those who actually survive getting off of the boat, they start taking them up into the quarantine center and they start to try to figure out how in the hell do we help these people who are clearly have been burned. But this is no ordinary burn. This isn't a fire burn. It's something that whatever happened, you can they can tell from the skin that it, it happened immediately in one second. And they start to try to figure out how to help these people. And they have very little supplies because of the war. As we know, Japan has been cut off. They, they can't get anything. And they go to work on trying to help those who actually make it off the ships alive. Yeah. It's always the bit that gets me when I read <clears throat> accounts of the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that the, the skin just sliding off them like a... Yeah, like a glove exactly sliding and it, off their and bodies they, and they weren't wearing gloves they didn't expect this to happen okay he's burnt you know whatever but it's it's okay grab him and then they just slide out of their grip and they're ugh, still holding their skin oh god yeah getting back to Australian journalist Wilfred Burchett uh, he had travelled 400 miles uh, from Tokyo alone carrying rations for seven meals um and he was uh, obviously shocked by the devastation and he wrote the world's first um newspaper article by an eyewitness of the devastation that was published so he said september 5th 1945 so almost a month after mm-hmm. the bomb had dropped the uh, headline for his article, I want to read the whole article because I think it's it's important. We're talking about the Cold War. This is the first description of the first atomic attack. Headline was, I write this as a warning to the world. Um, and I'll get to it in a second. But at the time when he, he wrote this, he talked about the city being reduced to a reddish rubble and people were dying from what he called an unknown atomic plague. Mm. Uh, it was ignored by most Western newspapers. And in, in our next episode, I want to talk in a lot of detail about how um, the effects of the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were censored by Western media for decades. Um, General MacArthur who was obviously in charge of the American occupation of Japan, ordered Burchett expelled from Japan for writing this article. And his camera with photos of Hiroshima mysteriously vanished while Burchett was in hospital. Um, The US officials accused Burchett of spreading Japanese propaganda about this atomic plague which they claimed didn't exist the u.s military issued a press release right after the bombing that downplayed the human casualties it sort of made the claim that the bombed area was the site of industrial and military targets which we know wasn't true it was a predominantly civilian area. There, there were some potential uh, uh, industrial targets of value, but it was mostly an, a, a civilian area. 
Um, anyway, I want to I read this article by Burchett. In Hiroshima, 30 days after the first atomic bomb destroyed the city and shook the world, people are still dying, mysteriously and horribly. People who were uninjured by the cataclysm from an unknown something which I can only describe as atomic plague. Hiroshima does not look like a bomb city. It looks as if a monster steamroller had passed over it and squashed it out of existence. I write these facts as dispassionately as I can in the hope that they will act as a warning to the world. In this first testing ground of the atomic bomb, I have seen the most terrible and frightening desolation in four years of war. It makes a blitzed Pacific island seem like an Eden. The damage is far greater than photographs can show. When you arrive in Hiroshima, you can look around and for 25, perhaps 30 square miles, you can hardly see a building. It gives you an empty feeling in the stomach to see such man-made devastation. I picked my way to a shack used as a temporary police headquarters in the middle of the vanished city. Looking south from there, I could see about three miles of reddish rubble. That is all the atomic bomb left of dozens of blocks of city streets, of buildings, homes, factories, and human beings. There is just nothing standing except about 20 factory chimneys. Chimneys with no factories. I looked west. A group of half a dozen gutted buildings. And then again, nothing. The police chief of Hiroshima welcomed me eagerly as the first Allied correspondent to reach the city. With the local manager of Domai, the leading Japanese news agency, he drove me through, or perhaps I should say over, the city. And he took me to hospitals where the victims of the bomb are still being treated. In these hospitals, I found people who, when the bomb fell, suffered absolutely no injuries, but now are dying from the uncanny after effects. For no apparent reason, their health began to fail. They lost appetite. Their hair fell out. Bluish spots appeared on their bodies, and the bleeding began from the ears, nose, and mouth. At first, the doctors told me they thought these were the symptoms of general debility. They gave their patients vitamin A injections. The results were horrible. The flesh started rotting away from the hole caused by the injection of the needle. And in every case, the victim died. That is one of the after effects of the first atomic bomb man ever dropped. And I do not want to see any more examples of it. But in walking through the month-old rubble, I found others. My nose detected a peculiar odour unlike anything I've ever smelled before. It's something like sulphur, but not quite. I could smell it when I passed a fire that was still smouldering, or at a spot where they were still recovering bodies from the wreckage. But I could also smell it where everything was still deserted. They believe it is given off by the poisonous gas still issuing from the earth soaked with radioactivity released by the split uranium atom. And so the people of Hiroshima today are walking through the forlorn desolation of their once proud city with gauze masks over their mouths and noses. It probably doesn't help them physically, but it helps them mentally. From the moment that this devastation was loosed upon Hiroshima, the people who survived have hated the white man. It is a hate 
the intensity of which is almost as frightening as the bomb itself. The counted dead number 53,000. Another 30,000 are missing, which means certainly dead. In the day I have stayed in Hiroshima, and this is nearly a month after the bombing, 100 people have died from its effects. They they were some of the 13,000 seriously injured by the explosion. They've been dying at the rate of 100 a day. They will probably all die. Another 40,000 were slightly injured. These casualties might not have been as high except for a tragic mistake. The authorities thought this was just another routine superfort raid. The plane flew over the target and dropped the parachute which carried the bomb to its explosion point. Many people had suffered only a slight cut from a falling splinter of brick or steel. They should have recovered quickly, but they did not. They developed an acute sickness. Their gums began to bleed, and then they vomited blood, and finally they died. The American plane passed out of sight. The all-clear was sounded, and the people of Hiroshima came out from their shelters. Almost a minute later, the bomb reached the 2,000-foot altitude at which it was time to explode, at the moment when nearly everyone in Hiroshima was in the streets. Hundreds upon hundreds of the dead were so badly burned in the terrific heat generated by the bomb that it wasn't even possible to tell whether they were men or women, young or old. Of thousands of others nearer to the centre of the explosion, there was no trace. They vanished. The theory in Hiroshima is that the atomic heat was so great that they burned instantly to ashes, except there weren't even any ashes. If you could see what is left of Hiroshima, you would think that London had not been touched by bombs. The Imperial Palace, once an imposing building, is a heap of rubble three feet high, but there is one piece of wall. Roof, floors, everything else is dust. Hiroshima has one intact building, the Bank of Japan. This is in a city which at the start of the war had a population of 310,000. Almost every Japanese scientist has visited Hiroshima in the past three weeks to try to find a way of relieving the people's suffering. Now they themselves have become sufferers. For the first fortnight after the bomb dropped, they found they could not stay long in the falling city. They had dizzy spells and headaches. Then minor insect bites developed into great swellings which wouldn't heal, and their health steadily deteriorated. Then they found another extraordinary effect of the new terror from the skies. Many people had suffered only a slight cut. I read this bit before. From a falling splinter. Okay, let's repeat. All these phenomena, they told me, were due to the radioactivity released by the atomic bomb's explosion of the uranium atom. They found that the water had been poisoned by chemical reaction. Even today, every drop of water consumed in Hiroshima comes from other cities. The people of Hiroshima are still afraid. The scientists told me they have noted a great difference between the effect of the bombs in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki. Hiroshima is in perfectly flat delta country. Nagasaki is hilly. When the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, the weather was bad and a big rainstorm developed soon afterwards. So they believe that the uranium radiation was driven into the earth and that, because so many are still falling sick and dying, it is still the cause of this man-made plague. In Nagasaki, on the other hand, the weather was perfect. The scientists believe that this allowed the radioactivity to dissipate into the atmosphere more rapidly. 
In addition, the force of the bomb's explosion was, to a large extent, expended into the sea where only fish were killed. To support this theory, the scientists point out the fact that in Nagasaki, death came swiftly, suddenly, and that there have been no after-effects such as those that Hiroshima is still suffering. If I can add on to that, the report that I was referring to earlier by the Manhattan District said that um, 67% of the buildings in Hiroshima were destroyed and only 12% of the buildings in Nagasaki uh, were remained undamaged. And, and, the, and don't ask me why, but the report put in the personal eyewitness account of Father John A. Semes, a professor of modern philosophy at Tokyo's Catholic University. And at the very end of his personal eyewitness account that's at the end of this report, he says, none of us in those days heard a single outburst against the Americans on the part of the Japanese. They suffered this terrible blow as, as part of the fortunes of war, something to be born without complaint. And again, this is obviously a very skewed report. Um, so if you did read it as an American, you, you're you would not know and you would not believe that these people truly went through something horrific and had um, ill feelings. If I could go back to Dr. Suzumura for a second. So he and his staff are dealing with thousands and thousands of patients. Suddenly some so shoulders. So let me try that again. Suddenly some soldiers show up and they have been ordered by their commander not to shoot any Americans or any British or any, any of the allies under any conditions. So basically, they've been told to stand down. And so they come up to the doctor and they say, we don't have anything to do. What can we do to help? So they start helping with the victims. They have to be shown, obviously, how to lift and carry and touch the victims so their skin doesn't fall off. Now, because of the fortunes of war and the Japanese have lost so many troops, the vast majority of, the, uh, the vast majority of these soldiers were 14 and 15-year-old kids. So it only takes... 30 minutes for the quarantine center to be completely filled up. But as you can imagine, victims and bodies keep arriving in shipload after shipload after shipload. It doesn't stop. Many of the people inside the facility have died. And so they are taken out to make space and they're put with the other bodies out in the, out in the big yard. And there's never enough room for anybody on the inside. And they're starting to, to run out of room on the beach for all the dead bodies. Um, and, um, they, they just get moved over with the other corpses. Now, some of the bodies that are not in military uniforms, like, and this was something that you alluded to, Cam, in that article, were so burnt, and yet they were still alive, that the doctors couldn't tell, the doctor and the nurses couldn't tell if they were male or female. Their bodies had been so singed. So the medics get into a routine of washing off the charred flesh, and they put on mercurochrome, a topical antiseptic. And they do this as long as not too much skin has fallen off, being carried from the boat to the facility. And then they loosely bandage the area that's been burned. Sometimes it's just an arm or a face. Sometimes, obviously, it's, it's most of the body. To, to let it breathe. And this is literally the best they can do because they have no idea what they're dealing with. So um, outside of the facility, the, the, the 14 to 15-year-old soldiers and some of the orderlies, they're running out of room even on the beach between the ship and the front door of the facility. So they start burning the bodies of the corpses. They write down their name. They write down any information, any belongings. They take it out. And they, you know, they're very organized. And they start burning it. And the staff literally works from that morning because the bomb falls at 8.15. They work through the day, through the night, on into the next morning. 
By 3 p.m. of the next afternoon, some 6,000 people have been brought to the island. Um, Obviously, most of them are dead, but the ones that are still alive have a very high, consistent fever, like the the young doctor, but he doesn't have time to think about it. And um, that afternoon, several boys are brought in uh, to the hospital. They're first and second graders. They had been organized by the army to go to the parts of Hiroshima that have really tight-knit wooden houses. Obviously, the uh, the locals think that the Americans are going to firebomb them, so they got to get these people out of these, these wooden houses because it's obviously a death trap. Most of these young first and second graders die from the explosion. Two of them make it to the island. Their parents finally figure out where they're at and come and get them, and the doctor tells them, they're not going to be alive for much longer. The parents don't say anything. They don't yell. They don't berate the doctor. They pick up their children, put them on their backs, and take them home so they can die with their families. God, man. Yeah. I'm barely holding it together here. And it gets worse. But a a bit of... I can do it now, or I can let you talk some. Uh, no, keep going because I'm gonna I'm gonna start talking about the PR handling of this in the U.S. next. Okay. So by the second day, United States military planes are flying over. They're obviously doing reconnaissance. There was some bombing after this, but most of it's reconnaissance, and the American pilots realize that they're not being fired upon. So they start flying slower, uh, lower and lower and slower, and then they start flying over the island. And you can, and the boys who, and the boys in the teens, the military teens who are burning the bodies, see that the Americans are taking pictures. Obviously, they're they're gathering information. And what that report that I referred to at the beginning of the show stressed was that they were literally cataloging the effects of this. Yes, how many buildings knocked down? How many people died? How far out from the from ground zero were fire started? I mean, they need to know this for future applications. That's what this is all about. So the second night, obviously many more patients um, are dying. and they have to be taken out and burned with the other bodies. The, that space that was for the dead for the dead bodies um, is now being taken up by refugees who have nowhere to go. They made it off uh, out of the city of Hiroshima. There's fewer patients, so now that the doctors can really start focusing some better care on these people, so they start to give them shots for pain. But like you said in that article, as soon as the needle goes into the skin, the skin whatever the muscle can't handle it, and a lot of time the the very shots to relieve their pain brings the patient's death. And so the doctors are literally doing trial and error with shots. Yes, give them a shot. No, don't give them a shot. Give them a shot here, not there. You know, large muscle groups. And they're literally trying, because again, they don't know what they're dealing with. So they're doing the best they can. An inspection team from Tokyo comes the third day and they question the survivors. And one, uh, he was a colonel. He told the doctor, it's an atomic bomb because we, our government himself, have been working on this. So because so many people have been dying over the last 48, 72 hours, things are really starting to calm down, except for the fact that you have all these bodies. So the kids and the teenagers in the military are told to use a big giant fire pit that's normally used for burning war horses to start getting rid of the bodies of all the dead. 
Now, the doctor starts examining some of these bodies that only have very, very few burns, and he wonders why they die, but it turns out they had massive internal bleeding. So just because you don't see something on the outside doesn't mean that either you can't die or that that your life is at risk. Just like you said, Cam, some of the patients start telling the doctor, even though they don't have any burns, they start telling the doctor that their hair is falling out all by itself. And this is the amazing part, that... Maybe the Americans should have known. Who knows? But this is this is going to affect these exposed people for the next six, seven decades. The doctor, because there's very few survivors, starts doing blood tests. And he finds out that the patients have no white cells, leukocytes. This is obviously cells in the immune system that are made to protect from infectious diseases, foreign invaders. And the, and the white blood cells are produced in bone marrow. So later, many people from exposed to these bombings die of leukemia in a group of cancers that starts in the bone marrow. And what it is is uh, the the radiations got in there, and at first they have no white cells, and then the body starts producing high numbers of abnormal white cells, and which of course is cancer. So it might take six decades, but you've been affected by this, and you're going to die later. Now, just to be safe, the doctor does nine separate blood tests on different people, and the results are all the same. Such a dramatic, he says, he wrote down, such a dramatic de- decrease of white blood cells from about 7,000 to one-tenth of that totally means simply death. So over the next two days after this, the burn victims start to decrease, but the number of people that are still dying, uh, let me try that again. So the number of burn people, shit, let me try that again, because this is really, over the next two days, the deaths from burn victims start to decrease. But gradually, the number of deaths increase from patients whose hair is falling out. They have a fever. They manifest an oral ulcer. They start bleeding. And like you said in your article, they lose their physical strength and then they die. And on this, uh, all, all these death certificates, the doctor's been writing various things. And he just starts writing acute radiation injury. And that's what he puts for all of them. He just starts mass producing. He just starts writing it uh, for all of them. Um, and, and I'll just and I'll just end with this. The doctor writes in his diary about the Americans. The enemy would have tested the bomb somewhere before they dropped it. This first one on Hiroshima. And though the test site went undetected by us, they must have been amazed by its power of destruction. But maybe they did not recognize clearly the radiation damage that would appear only several days after the injury. If they knew about it, they would have foreseen that Japan would understand the real horror they faced and would be obliged to surrender in a week or so. And the last thing he wrote was that out of all of the pregnant women who came to him, who survived, almost all of them spontaneously aborted. And he was just a kid. He was like 21, dealing with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of patients, obviously, which most of them died. And the ones who did survive, I mean, their lives are reduced forever. We went to great lengths um, in previous episodes to explain the road to the decision to use the bomb on Japan. Um, 
but I want you to listen to how it was presented to Americans. Stepping up the firebomb raids for emphasis, Truman tried one last time to pressure the Japanese into giving up. He sent an ultimatum to Tokyo demanding immediate surrender. But he left out specific mention of the nuclear peril ahead if it were not accepted. The firebombs were devastating, but the demand for surrender was ignored. Truman believed he had used up his options. He now gave the order that the atomic bomb be dropped on Japan. It was my purpose to wind up the war as soon as possible. I believe that no man could fail to use the bomb and afterward look his countrymen in the face. To get ready for the delivery of the bomb, the 509th Composite Group of the 20th Air Force have been practicing for over a year in an isolated desert of Wendover Field. Note that um, they don't talk about the fact that the Japanese had been trying to surrender and mm -hmm. the Americans, including Truman, were well aware of that. There's totally omitted from how it was presented to the Americans for years and years later. Yeah. But the decision... I'm sorry, if I could just add to that real quick, I apologize. Uh, the end of the Manhattan Engineer District report before the personal um, eyewitness account of that of that priest says, and it, it literally the report ends with this. The atomic bomb did not alone win the war against Japan, but it most certainly ended it, saving the thousands of allied lives that would have been lost in any combat invasion of Japan. So again, that tried and true stick of we're doing this to, to end the war, to, or, or more to be more precise, to save Americans to hell with the Japanese. So again, this this report is just... And I don't even know who saw this report because it was for the military, it was for the government in the Manhattan Project. But if you had read it, you would think the Americans were completely justified and knew exactly what they were doing with dropping the two bombs. And as we know, because we've gone through the evidence um, in a fair amount of detail in preceding episodes, um, it was highly unlikely that the invasion was ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. As I, I, I've been saying on Facebook recently, it, it was it's a kind of a myth that America was going to have to invade. It was an option, but most senior military and political leaders knew that it probably wasn't going to get to that, no. uh, particularly once the Russians declared war, as they had already agreed with Truman that they would on August 15th. But instead of waiting for that and seeing what impact that had, they dropped the bombs anyway. Um, but yet, it's still, uh, uh, when it, in these discussions I've been having on Facebook just in the last week, a whole bunch of people, including some of our listeners mm -hmm. who later said they hadn't listened to the most recent episodes, <laughs> right. um uh, pulling out this old hoary story. Well, you know, it would have been a lot worse if we'd invaded. Go, well, you, you, you it probably was never going to happen. You know, right. there's no reason why they could, couldn't <laughs> explore other options and then drop the bomb if all other options for surrender failed. Right. And, and to be clear, to make the distinction, yes, we knew we were going to occupy just like Germany and Italy. But as far as actual invasion, no, we had options. We had the Russians. We had time. Yeah, that was just 
uh, even that talk about November 1st, vague, and I think it was going to be more of an occupation than an actual invasion. But the decision to drop the bombs is just one aspect of the start of the nuclear arms race that was hidden from Americans. The other aspect is the destruction that the bombs caused. Within weeks of the bombings, Tokyo-based newsreel company Nippon Aigasha sent Japanese camera crews to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to shoot footage of the devastation and, and the victims. And then on October 24th, 1945, a Japanese cameraman in Nagasaki was ordered to stop shooting by an American military policeman. They confiscated his film, and then the rest of the 26,000 feet of footage that Nippon Agasha had taken, and it was all confiscated by U.S. General Headquarters. Now, that film, which became known as The Effects of the Atomic Bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was known in Japan as the Maboroshi, or Phantom Film. Mm-hmm. Because it because it disappeared. From the very beginning, the way the atomic bombing of Japan was presented to the American public and the public around the world was a very carefully handled PR issue. Now, at this point, the American public knew little about the conditions after the bombing in these cities beyond these stories that trickled out of Japan by people like Burchett that said that a mysterious affliction was attacking many people who survived the initial blast. But these were mostly positioned by the American government and media and military as Japanese propaganda. There's a guy called George Weller, worked for the Chicago Daily News. He won a 1943 Pulitzer Prize as a Daily News war correspondent. He also slipped in, this time into Nagasaki, and he wrote a 25,000-word story on the nightmare that he found when he got there. Mm. But then he made a huge mistake. He submitted the piece to the military censors before it was published. And his newspaper, the Chicago Daily News, never even received the story. Disappeared. Black hole. Weller later talked about it and he said, uh, he's talking about MacArthur's census, he said they won. Yeah. They won. They managed to hide reporting of the effects of the bomb from the American public. Now, notes from his trip were finally published by his son long after Weller died, book called First into Nagasaki. Do you know when it was published? Was that 2006? 2006. Yeah. Wow. 60s, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 50, 60 years, 61 years later. Uh, it was finally published. By the way, do you know what he won his Pulitzer for? No. It's a great story. Right. <laughs> In 1943, uh, he got a Pulitzer for an article he wrote in 1942 where he interviewed crew members who were eyewitnesses to an emergency appendectomy performed in a submarine using a tea strainer and spoons. Damn. 
That's ingenuity. I mean, what, what? Just damn. I hope the guys who performed the emergency appendectomy got a, got a, got, got some, <laughs> an award. Something, yeah. yeah. He wrote about it and got a Pulitzer. He wasn't even there for it. He just interviewed crew members and he got a Pulitzer for it. Damn. I couldn't find that story. I should have looked harder. Now, newspaper photographs of the victims uh, in the two cities were also destroyed or censored. Um, no one got to see them. Life magazine later wrote that for years, the world knew only the physical facts of atomic destruction. And what I want to explore are some of the reasons why the true story and the photos and the film was hidden from the public. Mm. Now, uh, tens of thousands of American GIs occupied those two cities yeah. within a short time after the bombs were dropped. And because this residual radiation was called a hoax, propaganda, oh, shit. No, one, no one took any precautions. Right. Now, 19, uh, early in 1946, a special U.S. military unit shot 20 hours of film footage in full colour, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm. Uh, the chief cameraman was a Japanese guy, Harry Mimura, who in 1943 had shot a film called Sanshiro Sugata, the first feature film by then-unknown Japanese director Akira Kurosawa. Um, but all of this footage that he shot for the Americans ended up again same as the Japanese footage, hidden for decades and almost nobody could see it. No one outside of military or, or official circles saw any of it for at least 30 years. 90,000 feet of colour film of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, enough for 30 full-length films, was classified as top secret until the enough. 80s. And if I remember correctly, even Hollywood didn't use this stuff too much because it was so expensive. But obviously, this is the government. If you can spend $2 billion on a bomb, you can afford color film. And that's exactly what they did. And we'll explore uh, what happened to it as we go. For, for decades after 1945, all that most Americans and the rest of the world's population saw of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were a handful of black and white images, a mushroom cloud, mm -hmm. just flattened buildings, um, the, the dome, the skeleton of a dome. But one thing you'll see is there's no people in any of those photographs. Right. There's no pictures of skin shearing off of bodies. Or, or photographs of people with no skin on them, or the the mountains of corpses that were left, or the as you mentioned before, the the, the charred, writhing remains of some people. That none of that was made available. Not that it didn't exist; mm -hmm. tons of it existed. It was sheltered from the world's population. And and you made a point an episode or two ago. The average American doesn't know diddly squat about physics, chemistry, whatever. I mean, as far as the Americans know, it's a really, really, really big bomb. Just like all the other bombs, just somehow 
you've done something that's a lot more powerful. They're not being told anything else. And so, and they're not being shown very much of anything. So yeah, they're like, we use these really big bombs um, that we pay for and won the war on military, on military, on targets. military targets. Yes, exactly. So yeah, they're like, yeah, Hey, that's, that's, that's what happens in war because they, they only know not- 20% of the story. Hmm. On the morning of the 9th of August, 1945, 16-year-old Sumitero Tanaguchi was about 1,800 metres from the hypercentre of the bomb that exploded over Nagasaki. He was delivering mail on his bicycle without a shirt because it was a warm summer day when Fat Man exploded in the sky above him. Now, the bomb's heat flash instantly burned uh, his back. But the blast that arrived afterwards didn't cause him any severe injuries. He clung to the ground while buildings all around him were just flattened. He had heavy burns that melted skin from his left arm and right down his back. But he says he didn't bleed or feel any pain. Uh, apparently one of the things that happened is the nerve endings just completely burned away in an instant. And uh, I guess he didn't bleed because it was cauterized or something. um, Between that and adrenaline, yeah. Does adrenaline stop you from bleeding? No, I'm talking about as far as pain, the other part of it. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he managed to get up and walked over to a nearby munitions plant where a female survivor assisted in cutting off loose portions of skin Mm. and rubbed machine oil on his damaged arm where the skin came off. I don't know, some form of protection, I guess, from infection. I guess. Seal it. Yeah. By the time night came, Tanaguchi was carried to a hill to rest where he was surrounded by other survivors. When he woke up the next morning, everyone else was dead. During the next two days, rescue teams passed by him without noticing him. He was too weak to even raise an arm or to call out for help. He was eventually found two days later where he was finally taken to a Navy hospital where he spent the next 21 months lying on his stomach while they tried to get his back to heal. And you can see photos and film of him in the hospital with them tending to his back from the American crew that were there in 1946. And I've watched this footage, Mm. um, and it's not a pretty sight, Ray. Yeah. Imagine a guy whose entire back has had the skin removed. Was it? I'm sorry, and you and you you were probably clear. I didn't pick up on it. Was it? Was it American doctors? Was it Japanese doctors um, trying to help? No, I think Japanese doctors. It okay. was at the Omura Navy Hospital, um, but an American crew that was doing the filming. Right. Okay. Now the film that the Americans shot was finally released to the public. It was declassified in 1982. Mm. And some of it was shown in a documentary called Prophecy, which was made by the Japanese, funded by the Japanese, 
they managed to buy the footage off the American government to make this film. Right. 200,000 Japanese citizens contribute half a million dollars. And a guy called Iwakura um, bought the footage from the United States government and uh, turned it into this documentary, which, again, you can... It's hard to find online, but you can find it and watch it. I watched most of it the other night. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the guy who made it, Iwakura, uh, uh, during the production, travelled around Japan filming survivors who had posed for the original US film crew oh, wow. in 1946. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the guys who shot the original footage in 1946 was an American called Herbert Susan. Um, he ended up, years later, being the director of special programs for NBC. Made something like 250 special telecasts. And he spent a lot of his life trying to get this footage released. Right. Uh, he had the opportunity to talk to Truman about it, Robert F. Kennedy, Edward R. Murrow... None of them could or would help him get this film released. Right. Now, meanwhile, U.S. servicemen were returning from Japan, suffering from strange rashes and sores, Mm -hmm. developing thyroid problems and leukemia or cancer, multiple myeloma or uh, lymphoma, uh, which Suzanne himself had associated with radiation exposure. Mm-hmm. So they're telling Americans uh, there's no radiation sickness. It's all been made up by the Japanese. Uh, they're sending the American troops there oh, God. Uh, who are then coming back with cancers and all sorts of problems. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, which will talk about in the next episode they're detonating nuclear devices for decades afterwards in the united states yeah and not telling anyone about radiation sickness or fallout and the the potential damage that that is doing to americans back home where they're testing nuclear bombs yeah anyway i think we'll we'll tie a knot under there ray unless you want to finish with something no, just just the absolute horrors, and I mean, we you can easily understand why Americans or anybody wouldn't want to know about the effects of these two bombs. But that's not what we're talking about. It was purposefully hidden from Americans and from everybody for decades, uh, because as the Cold War starts up, and we know we're going to build a whole bunch of more bombs, we're going to ask the American people to give a shit ton of money. And, and to participate and to work and to help build up this uh, nuclear arsenal, they would probably be less keen to do so if they saw its effects firsthand. I think that's part of it. But also, as we'll see in the next episode, I think big part of it is uh, the American officials were really embarrassed mm. um, and horrified by what they'd done. But they didn't want to admit that. Right. There's a lot of that. So they just... Yeah. So they just try and hide it from the American people. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be back next time. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.
immediate military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.